Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to You now. We want to look into Your Word, and we want to go away not forgetting what it says, but being doers of the Word. And so we pray this morning that You would work in our hearts, that You would make us spiritually and mentally attentive, and that You would help us to trust more in Jesus and to do exactly what He says, because we trust Him and seek to obey Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of driving along and then all of a sudden realizing, I can't remember the last few blocks or the last few miles. How did I get here? Did I make it through those traffic lights without running a red light? And I've certainly had that experience before. And sometimes in life we can say that. How, how did I get here? I, I'm not sure how that happened. Sometimes in marriage it feels that way too. How did we get here? I'm not sure how this happened. How did we get to this season of our marriage? Paul here gets to the point in his letter where he's beginning to address specific arenas in life in which the gospel is worked out. And one of those, the first of those, is marriage. And it comes on the heels of him saying that we need to be filled with the Spirit And one of the evidences of a spirit-filled life in verse 21 is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so he gives three arenas, marriage, parenting, and the workplace in which we see submission played out. Now what we're going to do over the next few weeks is look at this passage here, verses 22 through 33, and Look at how Paul discusses some of the issues related to marriage. And we're not going to talk about all the peripheral things, but rather the things that are central to the institution of marriage. Uh, Sometimes we want to focus on the peripheral things. But it's sort of like if you say that picture keeps falling off the wall and maybe I need a, a better nail or a better fastener to keep the picture on the wall. And all the time the wall is caving in and that's why the picture keeps falling off the wall. And so what we want to deal with are the foundation stones and the walls that go up and the roof that's on the house so that there's a proper structure in place to understand the institution of marriage. The decor is not our intent as we go through this, but the very foundational things that make marriage a marriage. And so let me read here beginning in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You may have seen the movie Bambi. Most people probably have seen the movie Bambi. And in one particular scene of the movie, as Bambi is growing up and he's met a couple of friends, Thumper and the skunk named Flower, well, Bambi and his friends are sitting there one spring day and the the birds seem to be all excited and flying around and the boy birds and the girl birds are kind of pairing up together and they're saying, what's going on? And the owl comes along and says, they've been Twitter-pated. They've been Twitter-pated, which means that at some point in the spring, the, the boys and the girls all of a sudden have eyes for one another. And they began to talk among themselves, well, this is never going to happen to me. I will never be Twitter-pated. And of course, as it goes on, first it's the skunk, then it's Thumper, and then it's Bambi himself when uh, he meets the doe that he is so enamored with. And you may remember those days as well when you met your spouse Days when you were all excited and your heart was thumping and maybe you were a little weak in the knees and you didn't know exactly what to say and you fumbled over your words and things just didn't seem to come out right. And before long you're, you're dating and then you decide you want to spend the rest of your lives together and so you get engaged and then there's the wedding and then there's the honeymoon, which is a time, actually interestingly, the, the word for honeymoon simply means that, that first month, that lunar cycle when everything seems so sweet and everything works out just as it's supposed to. That time when you don't notice the things about your spouse yet that begin to irritate you later. Their breath doesn't seem to be so awful in the morning that it could peel paint later on, as you would say. It's a time when you begin to overlook things like, well, he put his shirt on the floor, but I'm sure it's a fluke. It'll never happen again. I'll I'll overlook it this time. Everything's so sweet, you call each other honey bear and sugar bear and things like that. It's a wonderful time. But as they say, the honeymoon is over. And it's a saying for a reason, isn't it? Because you begin to settle into life and two sinners begin to rub shoulders against one another and things aren't quite so rosy. Uh, As I said before, the term honeymoon talks about that sweet period, that first month, and after that, it's like all bets are off. What's going to happen? Are we going to love each other well? And in fact, I would even say that it's, it's not even just in marriage where that begins to take place. We, we know that the closer we draw to someone else, even in our time periods of dating or courtship and engagement, there, there is tension there because two sinners are being put together. And because of that, there's always going to be friction but there was a time when actually there wasn't a need for a honeymoon to go off and sort of build a foundation together and get to know one another as a married couple there was a time when actually the honeymoon wasn't supposed to end and Paul talks about that time here as he quotes from the book of Genesis as Moses writes he says here in verse 31 therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now we're going to talk about a number of themes from Genesis chapter 2, which is where Paul is quoting from. 
But here as we talk today, we're going to focus specifically on this verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God lays out his design for marriage. What is the design for marriage? Now, first, before we get into that, one of the things that we need to realize is that it is a divine institution. It's not human. It didn't develop and evolve over time through human sociology. It's not a cultural creation. It's a divine creation. God is the one who instituted it. It came from his mind. And therefore, he sets the rules and the agenda for it. And unless we understand that fact then we often end up redefining marriage after the image that we want it to be. And after, actually, that's the very thing that's taking place in our own culture, isn't it? In a lot of different ways, marriage is up for grabs in the culture, and it's being redefined in ways that please people and not God. And what we'll see is that God has made us for marriage, and He's made marriage for us. The two are complementary. You have been made in a specific way for a marriage relationship as God has designed. Not for a marriage relationship that the world designs. And marriage has been specifically designed for your needs and for your desires. And so God says, use it in the way that I have laid out for you. Otherwise, if we redefine it according to our own desires, we end up breaking it. It's like desiring for your computer to run a bit faster. And rather than calling the computer technician, instead you say, I'm just going to plug it into this 220 outlet, and maybe it'll work a little bit faster. And all you end up with is a dead computer and a cloud of smoke. And for people who redefine marriage and say, I want it to work in my designs, that's what they end up with, is a dead marriage and a cloud of smoke. And so the first thing that we need to understand is that it's from God. It's His design, and we need to cooperate with it. We need to submit to his design for marriage so that we can have a healthy marriage. Not a perfect marriage, but a healthy marriage. And that's what we're going to look at here. Now, let me read a few verses around verse 24 in, in Genesis 2. Of course, God brings the woman to the man. And in verse 23, the man says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, in a way, it almost sounds a little bit too good to be true. The man is happy. The woman is happy. All is good. The man is so excited and elated. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And we're told here not only that, but verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's a true sense of security and happiness with one another. And you might think to yourself, well, that's wonderful, but that's not necessarily my marriage on every given day. Well, there's a reason for that, and that's chapter 3 of Genesis, isn't it? Because sin enters into the world, and because of sin in our lives, actually, Adam and Eve at this particular point had something that you and I have never had in this life and never will fully have in this life until we get to glory. And that is perfect and complete security in the presence of someone else. We've had a taste of it, maybe with a spouse, maybe with parents, maybe with friends, maybe with God himself, a taste of that 
intimacy and security where you feel like you can be totally transparent with this person. But because of sin, actually, we've never had that in its fullness, completion, and in perfection. So even though we've tasted it, we, we still wonder, am I secure? Am I, am I really loved? Am I really cherished and treasured? Am I really respected by my spouse? Am I really valued? Can I really trust this person with everything? That's all because of the sense of insecurity that sin brings into our lives. When sin enters into our life, as a result of the fall, there's a hole in our heart, and it was meant to be filled by God. And because of that hole, we're all a bit insecure. And we end up shoving all kinds of things in it to be secure, to find a sense of safety in our lives. But those things were never meant to give ultimate security. And so they never can be what we long for them to be. And so we feel that insecurity in our relationships and especially in marriage because we're so close to this other person. And we may, we may seek to hide our insecurity. We may seek to suppress it and overcome it with, with money and with power, with possessions, with other friendships, with whatever it might be. But the reality is, is that each and every one of us has this deep wound in our heart because of sin and we feel that sense of insecurity. And the result of it, as you go on to see in chapter 3, is very clear. Verse 7, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And in verse 12 says, the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. What's going on here? But, but they now feel a sense of shame about who they are. They're hiding from one another and from God. And not only that, but there's this division, arguing with one another, so that because of this insecurity and sin, there's now a wedge that's dividing husband and wife to some extent in this life. And it won't be till glory when that sense of insecurity is finally taken away and we have perfect completion in the presence of the one who loves us perfectly the lord jesus but the glorious thing here is that though sin has distorted marriage and everything else in the world when we submit to god's design and we seek to live out his word what jesus does is begin to redeem marriage and begin to put the pieces back together again. And though there's not a full, perfect, glorious marriage in this life, he says it can be better than ever. The more and more you submit to my purposes and my designs, because I will redeem it for your good. And so what's God's design for our marriage? Two things. First, leave. Leave, he says. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, what God does through Moses here is insert an editorial comment into the flow of the narrative about Adam and Eve. And so this is God's design, his editorial comment on how marriage ought to work and how man and woman ought to approach the relationship of marriage. They ought to, first of all, leave. Marriage establishes 
a whole new family structure, a whole new family unit. And this Hebrew word for leave means, means forsake. It has at its root core the idea of separation, that you're separating from one and grabbing hold of another. And that's what God says for us to do here, first of all, is to leave. Now, before marriage, a person's primary obligation, humanly speaking, is to their parents. Their parents are the authority over their lives. And a son or a daughter is to follow that allegiance. But now what God is saying here is that when we get married, we leave that authority structure behind and we now cling to our spouse. We separate from the authority structure that was once ruling over our lives and now a a new family unit supersedes the previous family unit. Now this leaving of your parents is not merely geographical. It's not even primarily geographical. If you think about what kind of society Moses was writing to in Genesis 2, it's a tribal society. You might have pitched your tent a little bit further away from your parents, but you're still in the same people group, the same family group. And so it's not geography that God is talking about here. It's a matter of leaving an authority structure that you were once bound to so that you leave financially, No longer dependent, you leave emotionally, you leave spiritually, and certainly leave physically. And negatively, what that means is, is that there's not an outside force that coerces how you live out your married life. Mom and dad don't speak into your marriage all the time and say, now you need to do it this way, this is how I did it. So negatively speaking, it's it's separating from that authority so that now As adults, you're called to live out the Scriptures on your own. But positively speaking, it means that now what you're doing is taking responsibility as a married couple. You're taking responsibility as a married person. I'm no longer living under the protection of my family, but now I'm called to a new family. And I'm called to take responsibility here. Now, it sounds easy. Leave. But in reality, it's not quite so easy as we often think of it. Lots of ways that we struggle to leave. One of those might be just leaving behind a a model of husbandry, a model of being a wife, a model of the family that maybe is unbiblical or maybe even that's just unhealthy for your marriage. Sometimes we have expectation. My dad always took out the trash, therefore men will always take out the trash, right? We have expectations that come in, maybe, maybe models of leadership that aren't healthy. And we've brought those in from our families, and in that sense, we haven't left and separated, but rather we're seeking to still live out our own family existence in our new marriage, living under the rule and the authority of our parents. There are other things that we do actually is just the opposite is to overreact to our parents. We might overreact against our parents. Maybe our parents were, were spiritually absent in our lives. And so I'm going to be so spiritually present in my marriage and in my children that I'm oppressive to them. That I'm standing over them and walk, watching over them and forcing them to do this and that and the other thing. Because you see, actually what I'm doing is reacting against my parents. And in that sense, they're still controlling me. And I haven't left. There are other things. 
Sometimes, and I've actually seen this fairly recently, spouses who are too emotionally dependent upon their parents still. Spouses who are constantly in contact and their primary sense of emotional strength comes from mom or comes from dad. And in that sense, they've never left. And because of that, there is a wedge in between husband and wife. Or it might be seeking advice from your parents, which is a good thing to do, by the way, but not when you don't consult your spouse first. And all of a sudden, the advice of your parents begins to overrule what your spouse thinks about how you ought to live your marriage. Sometimes it's accepting financial help from parents, which, again, can be a good thing, but when it comes with strings attached, and it begins to guide your marriage according to the desires of what your parents want for you, well, then you haven't left. Now, it may seem that this applies primarily to newlyweds, people just out of the gate. But in reality, this is the kind of thing that can continue on 30, 40, 50, 60 years into marriage. There are people who have been married for 60 years who have never fully left mom and dad. It might be a wife who thinks, you know, I've been trained by my mother to keep a a perfectly clean house. And what it's become is actually an idol of the heart where the house has to be perfectly clean all the time. And if it's not, then it puts pressure and expectations and feelings of guilt upon me and then pressure on the spouse and the rest of the family to keep the house clean. Something as simple as that is a way in which maybe after 60 years of marriage, You've never actually left. So Paul reiterates here, Moses saying, the first thing that we have to do is leave. And it's not just parents. It's any other authority structure that we put over our lives that can do damage to our marriage. It might be our friends who have a negative influence on us so that our marriage is not as healthy as it could be. It might be simply leaving the single life. You know, you get used to living the single life. Life on your own terms. And if you can't leave that behind, you'll never have a healthy marriage. Maybe it's the way that you spend money. I'm so used to spending money on my own terms this way, and I don't really consult with my spouse very often. And you haven't left that behind. And the first thing that we have to do is leave things behind. And you can only imagine what results when there's a sense of resistance by one or both spouses to leave something behind. It destroys that sense of security that God had designed for marriage. For them to be naked and not ashamed. Totally transparent with one another and completely secure. Because what happens is we, your spouse begins to wonder, am I not that important? Is there something about me that they don't like? Who is it that really has their heart? What's really controlling them? They begin to wonder if they're central in your life. And so the marriage relationship actually becomes self-protective. I'm going to begin to guard myself from getting hurt. And as people who are basically insecure by nature, we get into a marriage relationship where we're asked to be transparent with one another, vulnerable with one another. And when the spouse is choosing something else over us, naturally it makes us want to protect ourselves. 
Tension begins to rise. Hopes are frustrated. Now before you start looking at your spouse with a cross eye, thinking, now, yes, I have you. Later on, I'll get you for this one. Before you start looking at your spouse that way, what we need to realize is this is true for everyone. There's no sinner who gets married who doesn't struggle to leave in some fashion or another. And so actually, rather than looking at our spouse and say, how is it that you haven't left? What we ought to do is look at our spouse and say, how is it that I haven't left? Help me to see my blind spots. Help me to see how I need to leave for you. Well, the second thing is this, and I'm going to have to get through this quickly, is to join. If we're to leave, we now have to join. The way the ESV translates the Hebrew word is hold fast. And the Hebrew word simply means to stick. It means to be glued to someone. Stuck to them. Therefore, hold fast. Glued together. Joined together. So we make every effort, not only to leave other things behind, but to actually be joined, glued together with our spouse. That means we want to participate in the things that they participate in. We want to understand the things that make them tick. We want to get who they are. We want to know the things that motivate them, the things that they love and the things that they desire. It doesn't mean you have to do everything together, but it certainly means you have to be interested in what your spouse does and what they love and enjoy. Because our spouse needs to know that other than God, we put them first. And so we make every decision possible so that our marriage relationship is the primary relationship of our life in an earthly sense. That no other relationship competes with it. God has commanded here that a man will leave his wife, or leave his father and mother, and be woven together, you might say, with his wife. But you know how the busyness of life makes other things compete with our spouse, right? You can feel as though you're more like roommates than spouse. You live a parallel life. You live on two separate train tracks that may be going generally in the same direction, but at times they, they sort of part from one another and you feel as though you're living in the same house, but you're not actually joined and stuck to one another. And so we can say things like, well, he has his thing and I have mine. She has her thing and, and I have mine. In actuality, that's an agreement not to be joined together. It's a negotiated marriage where you say, well, we'll have a sense of being together, of being joined in some things, but in other things we're not going to be joined at all. And so you can negotiate terms of your marriage that way and be glued to other things. A career, money, your children. Parents can be glued to their children more than they are to their spouse. Hobbies. There's all sorts of things in life that we can be glued to more than our husband or wife. And we need to ask the question, am I joined to something in an inordinate way that is hurting my marriage? You see, by having other things that compete with our spouse or not embracing everything about our spouse, what we're actually doing is communicating to our spouse, there's something about you that I don't really care for. There's something about you that I'm not willing to embrace. There's something about you that may be unpleasant 
to me. And so what we end up doing is keeping our spouse at a distance rather than being joined to them. Uh, my wife likes to move furniture. And she doesn't like to move furniture just for the exercise involved. She likes to move furniture because she's a creative person and she likes to arrange the house in ways that are beautiful and pleasant. She also likes to arrange the house in ways that best suit the needs of our family. And I'll just tell you, this is a struggle for me. Moving furniture has always been a struggle for me. It's one of those things that, in my thinking, is sort of a lateral move. We're not getting anywhere. But in actuality, we are getting somewhere because Sally is arranging the house in such a way so that it functions best. And she makes things look beautiful. And you see, rather than saying, now I'm not going to be joined with you in that. That's your thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll moan about it over here in the corner. I ought to be thanking her for it. I ought to be rejoicing in it. Because she's seeking to do something to bless us. And it's who she is. And therefore, it ought to be a part of who I am. Because we're called to be joined together. And so we cannot say, that's just who she is. That's just who he is. They do their thing, and I do mine. And live with some kind of agreement that way. We, talk it up, we chalk it up to uh, different interests. Sometimes we chalk it up to different personalities. You know, we just don't click well together in that way. But God didn't make us for marriage to have the exact identical interests and exact identical personalities. He made us as unique people. And He says, now I'm going to fit you different people together so that you can learn how to love someone else and be joined to them and delight in who they are even though they're different than you. So what difference does all this make? Well, if we don't get it right, well, then everything else is going to be wrong. Sometimes couples say something like, you know, we just can't communicate. Communication is our problem. But let me tell you, communication is not your problem. If you have a hard time communicating, it's actually this that is the problem. Think about an example. A husband walks into the kitchen, the wife is maybe standing there doing the dishes and loading the dishwasher, and the husband says, sort of innocently, but says, I think we can fit some more dishes in that top rack. And he's been doing nothing but sit on the couch while the wife is in there working on the dishes, right? And so the wife looks over, excuse me, fine, if you think you can get some more dishes in the top rack, you go right ahead and get some dishes in the top rack. Is it a problem of communication? Well, slightly. But more than that, the wife doesn't feel valued. She doesn't feel cherished. She doesn't feel like her husband is joined with her. And you see, it's not a problem of communication primarily. So we're not going to work on the decor of the house. We're going to work on the foundation stones and the walls and the roof. And this is a foundation stone. If you want your spouse to be secure, that you love them, to be secure in marriage, leave everything behind and be joined in every way possible with them. So that the more that takes place, the more secure they feel and the more there is joy and pleasure in your marriage. Now, all of this makes marriage a risky venture. I realize that. 
And it's because of this that so many people have actually shipwrecked their marriages. Some people are even fearful of entering into marriage these days. They want, they want a guarantee that everything's going to work out. I've certainly had lots of college students over the years come to me and say, you know, I, I need to know when it's right to marry this person or if this person is the right person to marry. And really what they want is a guarantee. They want a guarantee that their affections aren't going to wane, that, that the spark is going to stay there, right? That everything's going to work out perfectly and, and pleasantly. Now, certainly there are some people that you can marry that are going to be easier to get along with than others. And for the Christians, certainly you're supposed to marry a fellow Christian and be yoked together with them. But how do you know you're ready to get married? When you're ready to leave everything behind and to be joined in every way with this person. That's love, isn't it? Isn't that a picture of the gospel of grace? What does the son do? But he leaves his home. He leaves his heavenly father behind to do what? To take a bride for himself, to be joined with her in every way, to die for her, to do everything he can to be with her. And that's the basis of marriage. And he says, now, if you want to have a secure marriage, just as the church is secure with her Savior, then what we need to do is leave everything behind to be joined to our spouse in every way possible. So that it's not just on your wedding day that you promise to love, but you're promising a future love that I'm going to love you tomorrow and I'm going to love you next year and I'm going to love you in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I'm even going to love you for all of eternity. And the more we begin to trust that that's how Jesus has loved us, then the more our hearts are so filled, that hole is filled with Him, and we say, that's how I want to love my spouse. I want to, I want to get rid of everything that competes with my spouse. And I'm going to be joined to her. I'm going to be joined to Him in every way that I can. And look at the result. What happens when that takes place? And they shall become one flesh. That's a glorious marriage, isn't it? Picture of two people becoming one. This is the foundation of every marriage. And if you want it to work in a healthy fashion, this is what we need to do. You may be married for 40 years but you can still begin to leave in a way that you've never left. And you can still be joined in ways you never thought possible to the one that you have pledged to love for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, there is so many glories to marriage. Forgive us that we have not loved our spouse in the ways in which You have said we have not sought to leave everything behind for them and be joined to them. That we haven't recommitted ourselves to them each and every day. For these are, these are covenant relationships. And so, Lord, we pray and plead that You would make our marriages more healthy as we are filled up with the love of Christ so that we can love our spouse in the ways that You have said. And in the end, be joined as one flesh. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.